Good morning. Today's reading from the Word of God comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are, are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right, right over here. Parents and guardians are also invited to go downstairs at this time for kids' crew orientation led by Pastor Allie. Hear the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Ethan, in case you didn't catch that earlier when I was up here. My name is Ethan. I'm one of the pastors here at Anchor Bay. I'm so glad to be worshiping with all of you today. Before we begin, uh, like we often do, before we jump into the passage, let's all take a moment and just quiet ourselves before the Lord. Invite the Spirit to move within our hearts, to speak to us, to compel us. Um, and after a moment, uh, I will pray for us. Christ, speak to us today. Compel us, Lord, in ways that we might love you and love our neighbor more. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Friends, when I was in college, uh, I had a friend who loved to argue and debate. He wasn't ever mean about it. He, he just really loved to debate. But more than that, I think he just liked to disagree. You know, to the point where sometimes I wasn't sure if he had already believed what he was arguing in favor for, or if just while playing devil's advocate, he kind of convinced himself along the way, you know? And thankfully, it was almost always just for fun. They were usually unimportant things that would kind of get our group of friends to honestly dissolve into chaos for a little bit while we debated. But, I mean, kind of things like when he said he believed that a quesadilla was a sandwich because sandwiches are just two slices of bread, right, with something in the middle, and that's insanity. But our friend group debated it for like an hour and a half. But at the end of the day, we could all walk away and we were fine and, and we were friends. That was usually the gist of it. 
he'd say something like, well, actually, and I would just prepare myself for some crazy take, you know? But one day, he said something I just couldn't let go. We could not walk away and both think differently about this. He and I, we were chatting one day. I genuinely don't even remember what we were talking about. I, I remember it was something nuanced where kind of like two things were true at the same time, but both also were kind of counter to each other. But we were both on the same page, you know. We were in agreement. Everything was fine. And so, you know, at the end I said, yeah, you know, it's just kind of a strange situation. And he said, yeah, I think it's just a bit of a catch-23. And so I said, totally, 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 yeah, yeah, we are on the same page. Also, I think it's catch-22. I think you're looking for the term catch-22, but it's fine. Like, we're, you know, we're on the same page. And he said, I'm pretty sure it's catch-23. And I said, nope, it's catch-22. It's a term from the book, catch-22, written by Joseph Eller. I've read it many times. It's a great book. It's catch-22. And he said, I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree. Listen, I would like to think that as your pastor, I'm a relatively mature individual, someone who can let little things go. On that day, I learned I, I guess, can be petty because I could not let this go. So I said, no, I, we cannot agree to disagree. Disagree to disagree, actually, because you are wrong and I am right. And oddly enough, he, he didn't particularly like that. That didn't make him more agreeable to my point. Because sometimes when we really believe that something is right or wrong, when we feel so passionately about the best way to do something, we are ready to just dig our heels in and argue till we're blue in the face. Sometimes it's about silly things, right? Like whether it's catch-22 or catch-23. And sometimes it's about really big things, important things. This is true in our personal lives, and it's certainly true in, within churches and within the Christian body. We cannot agree to disagree. You are wrong. I am right. Maybe it's whether to put stained glass in the church or not, or to sing from hymnals, or to sing more contemporary worship songs, whether to emphasize social justice or personal conversion, what the Bible says about women in ministry or predestination or the atonement or the end times or baptism or same-sex marriage, you name it. There are thousands of things that we can dig our heels in and debate about. And this isn't a new problem within the church. This has been going on for 2,000 years, ever since the early church started. Now, one place that it was happening a lot was within the church in Corinth, who the Apostle Paul wrote First and Second Corinthians to. And so today, we are continuing our brand new sermon series, Elephants in the Church, Hot Topics in the Corinthian Letters. Because there are elephants in the church, my friends. Elephants in the room. Elephant is something that you know is there, but you just never really talk about an elephant in the room. There are elephants in the room here in Christianity as well. Sometimes we don't talk about them because they're hard to understand or because they're more nuanced than how we know how to process. Sometimes we don't talk about them because it makes us uncomfortable or it could lead to confrontation. Sometimes we don't talk about them because we know that we won't budge on what we believe. So why would we talk about it? But whether we address the elephants in the room or not, they are there. And the truth is, is that how, how we think and what we believe about certain things, whether we talk about them or not, they shape how we act. They shape how we live in the world. And because those things have such power in our lives, 
they also have the power to divide us. And we see this happening, this division and disunity in the church in Corinth from the passage that Amelia read for us a moment ago. And instead of pretending that it isn't happening, Paul, who wrote the letter, he talks about it. He talks about it with some pretty direct language. And so today, we're talking about division in the church. As we'll see from our passage, division in the church has been a problem for 2,000 years. The early church struggled with it. The present-day church struggles with it. And the church all in the middle struggled with it. It's been a problem for, for a couple of millennia. And over the past couple of weeks, as I've sat down to study it, I'll be honest, I fixed it. I figured it out. Yeah, you're welcome, world. No, just kidding. I did not find some secret formula to unity that has eluded the global church for thousands of years. And starting today, we will never disagree about anything ever. But what I did find is that the Bible pretty specifically calls us to unity, to be united as one body in Christ, even if that's hard. And so let's talk about it. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. Let's see how we can move towards unity through the grace of Jesus. And thankfully, we can look at the early church in Corinth and see how they were encouraged to work through division and disunity. So let's just jump into the passage and see what we can learn. Right out the gate, Paul is pleading for unity in the church. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another and what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. This is not a preemptive plea. This is an intervention, because there is division in the church in Corinth already. They are bickering, they are quarreling, they are arguing with each other. They are disagreeing about some things, but apparently they cannot agree to disagree. These disagreements are leading to fighting with each other. So what are they fighting about? Paul goes on, he says, what I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, and another, I follow Cephas, and another still, I follow Christ. The church in Corinth has started fractioning. They've started quarreling with each other about who they should follow and who they should listen to. They started bickering about what teachings are best. Some are saying, man, Paul's teachings are the best, obviously. And then some others are saying, Paul, that guy, no, no way. We listen to Apollos. That guy is teaching some great things on and on and on until they are at each other's throats. And this makes sense with what we know about the city of Corinth. Uh, 1 Corinthians was written to the church in Corinth. Corinth was one of the largest and most influential cities in Greece. Like Pastor Bryn talked about last week, Corinth was a port city. It was a hub of a lot of travel and commerce around the world, which means a lot of people traveled in and out of the city. And with so much multicultural trade and travel, Corinth became a significant cultural center with all kinds of different schools of thought and religion and philosophy and art. So being well-spoken or particularly wise or being a creative thinker was highly valued in Corinthian culture. So people would flock to these thinkers or these teachers, and often there were competitive rivalries between followers of certain teachers. If you followed so-and-so, then their teaching was best and all the other ways of thinking were wrong. People would really center themselves on one person and then the other people, they were the enemy. And that's what's happening at the church in Corinth. 
The Corinthians are listening to certain teachers in the church and devoting themselves fully to them. And they start arguing with each other about it. They start bickering about what teaching is best, which ideas are most Christian. They're saying, you follow Cephas? Man, you're wrong. We follow Apollos because he's teaching us X, Y, Z about Jesus. He's really showing us Jesus. So if you're not following him, then you're not learning about Jesus. You don't even know Jesus. Only those people who followed this person or that person really had Jesus. As Paul puts it, they are dividing Christ. They disagree over certain teachings or rhetoric, and that's leading them to say there's no way you're following Christ. He can only be worshipped this way. Paul doesn't really even say what the different teachings are. We don't really learn what differences in theology or practice there are between the teachers, but we do learn that the Corinthians just cannot agree to disagree, and it's dividing the church. And I am just so, so glad that that never happens in our modern church. You know what I mean? Just kidding. Happens all the time. The church, church with a capital C, the the global church across the world is just as divided as ever. Did you know that there are 45,000 denominations of Christianity in the United States alone? 45,000. If I sat down, if all of us together tried to sit down and list them all, we'd get 50, maybe. There are 45,000 churches, denominations, Christian groups, or organizations, they split and divide constantly over disagreements. These people say you can't think like that and still be part of our church. And those people say there's only one way to think about this thing, and if you don't think that, find a new church or a new denomination. Maybe there are disagreements about theology or about how to practice certain things in the church or how we should live as Christians outside of the church. So churches split. A group leaves and starts a new church where their beliefs or their opinions are the standard. And then another group stays and they make sure that their beliefs and their preferences are upheld. And we, became, we become more and more and more divided. We've done this for centuries. Christians have left churches. We've left denominations. We've split churches in half. We started new denominations all because we think one way of thinking is the only way of thinking. And we base our new thing that we make over what we are against instead of what we're for. And sometimes it is for the silliest reasons. This last week I read an article. Someone asked for anyone who had witnessed a church split to send in, write in, and tell them the reasons why the church divided. And some of those answers made me laugh and then made me really sad because, like, they're so silly. But as an example, one church got into a really heated argument and had some members leave the church because there was a disagreement over whether the worship leader could take his shoes off during the service. Church split. One church got into a huge argument about whether it was okay to bring coffee into the sanctuary, and they had families leave. One person said their church never relationally recovered from an argument about what color the carpet in the sanctuary should be. Never recovered. You know, but it's not just those silly things that divide us, though, right? We can usually agree to disagree on small, unimportant things. Sure, call a quesadilla a sandwich all you want. You're wrong, but whatever. But what about the big things? What about the things that we think are really important? What about who's qualified and allowed to lead a church? What about money and what we teach about it? What about musical worship and how we pray? What about what we teach about sin and grace? 
What about sexuality and intimacy? What about those big things? Because hundreds and thousands of churches and denominations have split over those things as well. And all too often, when it becomes the big things, we begin to otherize people who think differently than us. We think of them as other. They're not us. They're them. People who spend money differently than I think they should, they're greedy or they're irresponsible. People who practice that kind of musical worship instead of what I practice, they're not worshiping with enough reverence or they're afraid of change. People who voted for that person in the last election, they are narrow-minded or uninformed. People who preach about grace and love all the time, they don't treat sin seriously enough. People who preach about sin all the time, and they don't embrace God's love and grace enough. People who have read Scripture and interpret sexuality and gender differently than me, they don't take the Bible seriously enough, or their views are bigoted and closed-minded. And if we're honest with ourselves for a second, truly, if we just took a breath and just looked at our own hearts for a second, not anyone else's, forget the other people, just us, don't we all do that? Even if it's just a little? Because all of us have opinions and beliefs on all of those things. Years ago, I had a friend named Andrew. He and I liked making and editing videos together. We'd make these like goofy or random shorts or sketches. It was fun. But sometimes we would make videos for other people too, like his church or our old theater teacher, things like that. People who needed something done and didn't quite have the money to pay for it. And it was fun. But that started to rub Andrew the wrong way. He wanted to get paid. And honestly, I mean, I can't blame him, right? Like, it's not a bad thing to want to get paid for doing a lot of hard work. But one day when we were talking about it, Andrew said, I just don't think God would give me this talent if I'm not supposed to make money from it. And I disagreed for a lot of reasons. But he said, why would I do this for free when I can get paid? God wants me to make money from this. And I believed he was wrong. I thought that was a bad interpretation of Scripture. I thought it was incredibly unchristlike. I thought he was ignoring God's call towards generosity and selflessness. I thought he was prioritizing money over people. And so I told him that. About as directly as I just told you. And wouldn't you know it, he didn't receive that well. And so we argued we said really hurtful things. And then we didn't speak to each other for six years. And Christ have mercy. I regret that day a lot. I still have thoughts and feelings about what we argued about, but how I think about it isn't the point because what matters is that we both put being right way ahead of being brothers in Christ. Yet when we open the Bible the inspired Word of God, we see that we are called to the opposite of that. We are called to unity. We are called to agree with one another in what we say so that there is no division among us, so that we are perfectly united in mind and thought. But is that possible? How can we possibly attain this kind of unity where we're all perfectly united? Wouldn't that actually lead us to arguing even more until finally one side says, I guess you're right, whatever, you're right. Is this possible? And as I read our passage today, the language reminded me of another Bible passage 
It reminded me of the end of Acts chapter 2. So I flipped over to Acts 2 and I started reading. The second chapter of Acts tells us about the day that we call Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended on the followers of Jesus and they were all able to speak in other languages. So they started preaching in other languages to the people there, telling them about Jesus, preaching the good news of the gospel, inviting them to Jesus and to new life. And so many people turned to God. There was this whole new wave of believers in Jerusalem. And at the end of the chapter, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and, pr and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. And it's that last line that stood out to me that I thought of when I was reading Corinthians. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They had everything in common. Let's just stop and think about that for a second, because it's actually kind of easy for us to forget that the people at the end of Acts chapter 2 are the people from the crowd at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. When the Spirit fell and enabled people to speak in other languages, this is the crowd that was hearing it. And these people are from 16 different cities or countries. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Cretans, and Arabs, these are the people that Acts says have all things in common. People from 16 different cities and countries? You know what? I bet they actually had very few things in common. They were from different countries and cultures and probably had different opinions and practices on a lot of things. And yet it says they had all things in common. Because I think at the end of the day, they had one foundational thing in common. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, it says. And what the apostles had just taught them was the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, the Savior of the world, had died for them and loved them and called them to new life. So they started pointing their lives towards that. They started pointing their lives towards Jesus. And when they did that, as different as they all were, they devoted themselves to fellowship together. They devoted themselves to eating together. They took care of the poor. They opened their homes to each other. They went to the temple together and continued worshiping together. And while they did all of these things together, they praised God and enjoyed the favor of all the people together. It never once says that they all started thinking exactly alike. Not once. It doesn't say that they started thinking alike. It doesn't say they all believed the same particulars in theology or practice or that they never disagreed. But they devoted themselves to Jesus, first and foremost. And that devotion overshadowed every difference or disagreement they may have, and that devotion spilled out and over into how they lived their lives. Because there is a big difference between unity and uniformity. And I think a lot of times Christians mix those two words up. We think that we have, we think that we have to think uniformly all the same way to be unified. And that's what leads to division in the church. And that's what Paul is begging the church in Corinth to remember as well. In the midst of division and bickering and arguing, 
within the church about who is right and who's wrong about this or that. Paul basically says, hey, do you remember Jesus? Because Paul is essentially saying, why are some of you saying that you follow me or Apollos or Cephas? Did any of us die on the cross for you? You should be following Jesus. Why are you throwing all of your support behind one of us and letting that divide you? He says, listen, all I'm here to do is to preach the good news of the gospel. And honestly, I'm not even that great at that. So don't try to think that this is about me. It's all about Jesus. Paul never tells them to stop listening to Apollos or to Cephas or to himself. He doesn't tell them that he thinks one of them is more right than the others because that doesn't seem to matter to Paul. Instead, he begs them to be unified. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, agree with one another in what you say. Be perfectly united in mind and thought. What matters most? What should we devote our words and our minds and our thoughts towards? It is always Jesus first. Paul is begging them to be unified as Christ followers so that in whatever we do or think or say, those things are pointing towards Jesus. And that devotion then overshadows every other difference and it spills out into how we live and love in the world. Just like the new believers in Acts chapter 2 who are all very different people with different experiences and different ways of thinking who still had all things in common because everything they did was pointed towards Jesus. Because at the end of the day, we will still likely have disagreements. In fact, I promise you, we will continue to disagree about things. And those things matter, some of them. Maybe not the shoes while leading worship, but the other ones. I mean, these things matter and they are important and we take them seriously because some of these things that we disagree on have dramatic consequences for real people. But those disagreements should all fall dramatically second to our agreement in Christ. This way of thinking, when our grounding value is pointing towards Jesus, is something called centered set theology. See, when we allow ourselves to be divided, we begin thinking in a very bounded set, full of boundaries. A bounded set way of thinking is like a circle. And with circles, you're either inside the circle or you're outside the circle. So say inside the circle is only for people who live in Beverly. I'll be in that circle, but all of you who live in Salem or Marblehead or Danvers or Peabody or Wenham or Hamilton, tough luck. You're out of the circle. Or say that inside the circle is only for people who have read all of Harry Potter. I'm definitely in that circle like 16 times. But Pastor Gene somehow is still outside of that circle. <laughs> but naturally, the more, uh, the more conditions that we put on the circle, then the more exclusive it becomes. Inside the circle is for people who believe the same things I do politically, who think the same way about this certain topic in Scripture, and who worship the same way that I worship. And if you don't do all three of those things, if you even miss one of those things, you're out. You can't worship with me. And it's this kind of thinking that leads to 45,000 denominations in the United States. But there's another way of thinking, and it's called centered set theology. Instead of a circle, think of it as a dot right in the middle. And for us Christians, that center dot is Jesus. The only pivotal, necessary thing in this way of thinking is, are you pointing towards that dot? Are you pointing towards Jesus? Because at the end of the day, whenever we start disagreeing about something, the most important question is whether we're pointing towards Jesus. 
We can and should still be able to worship alongside our siblings in Christ who believe things differently than we do because the one thing we have in common, Jesus, is the most important thing that we're both pointing towards. Like the people in Acts chapter 2 from 16 different cultures and cities and countries and different opinions and backgrounds and, and thoughts, they were all unified in Christ and in their mission to love God and love others. Like Paul is reminding the Corinthians, they should listen to Apollos or Cephas or Paul or whoever as long as they can still be unified and pointing towards Christ. Now, I will say that is all pretty easy for small things like coffee in the sanctuary or the color of carpets. But what about the big things? What about when we think that the other person believes something that is harmful? Or that's it's not what God has called us to? What about things like racism or sexuality or gender roles or how we think about sin? What about those things? Well, what did Paul do? Because Paul was writing a letter to a bunch of people that he thinks are doing wrong, harmful things. Well, he started like Pastor Bryn talked about last week. He started by calling them saints in Christ. And he prayed for them. And he continued to walk with them as their brother in Christ. He continued to visit them. He continued to encourage and love them. And he continued to challenge them on their thinking. All throughout Corinthians, Paul uses very strong, very direct language when he talks about the ways that the church has lost sight of Christ. And importantly, he tells them why he believes that what they're doing is harmful, why he believes it's important to God. But he always dishes out love first, and he always dishes out love last. He truly believed that the church in Corinth were doing not good. In fact, he literally says, your meetings are doing more harm than good. Yikes. I can think of some Christians or some churches that I know of that I am tempted to say that to as well. Yet he still calls them saints. He still loves them. He still prays for them. He still worships with them. He still calls them brothers and sisters and siblings in Christ. And at the end of the letter, after he spent a lot of time talking with them about why he thinks that what they're doing is wrong or harmful, he ends his letter by saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you and my love to all of you in Jesus Christ. Because it's when we're able to look at one another as fellow saints in Christ. When we stop looking at our faith with a bounded mindset to keep others out and instead start looking at our faith with a centered set mindset where the center is always and only Christ, it is only then that we can come alongside our siblings in Christ in love and grace, even when we disagree, even when it means that we share in love how we think that they might be missing the mark because we always start and always end with love. So friends, how do you see division in your own spiritual life right now? Who are the people that are easy for you to otherize or picture as the bad guys? What is your line, right, that makes it hard for you to worship alongside someone else? And maybe how are you that line for someone else? Because we are starting a year-long sermon series on hot topics in the church, and Spoiler alert, we probably all won't come away agreeing on every single thing we talk about. 
and that is okay. So what would it look like for us to still be unified with that person or those people? For the small things, yeah, but what about for the big things? What would it look like for us to be able to say, I genuinely disagree with you, and it's about something important to me. So I'm going to tell you that I love you, and then I'm going to tell you why I think this is important. I'm going to be honest, and I'm going to listen to you, and I'm going to tell you that I love you again. And then I'll tell you, see you next Sunday at church. Because we are still unified in Christ. And we are both saints in Christ. And I love you. What would that look like? Because we are called to unity, friends. We are called to look to Jesus first. To be unified on that most important thing. And to let everything else fall second to that. And when we feel like our fellow saints in Christ are missing the mark We are called to stand alongside them in love as we work together towards recentering ourselves on Jesus and on being unified in Christ. Let's pray. Christ, have mercy for us, for all the ways that we have attempted, whether intentionally or not, to to divide you all the ways that we let division seep into our hearts and into our minds. Christ, have mercy. Lord, we pray in your name that you will enable and empower us to look at our siblings in Christ as siblings in Christ, as fellow saints. So that as we talk about the hard things, as we talk about the big things, Lord, we pray that your spirit will empower us to do so standing side by side with these people to consider them saints in Christ and to work first and foremost towards pointing our lives towards you. Lord, we are confident that if we do that, that you who are always faithful to us, Lord, will stir up such unity in us that we've never seen before. Be with us, Lord. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.